Randolph County, North Carolina, Deed Book 47, page 136, from a document dated 16 March, 1882. The following is the true genealogy of Daniel Goines and family. His great-grandmother Elizabeth Goines was white. His grandfather William Goines was mixed. His grandmother Patsy Petty was white. His father Sandy Murchison was white. His mother Leanne Goines slightly mixed making Daniel Goines, very slightly mixed, passed into the white race to the third generation at least, and to all probability to the fourth or fifth. This affidavit is continued in Randolph County, North Carolina, Deed Book 63, page 227, as follows, from a document dated 16 July, 1884. Cumberland County, personally appeared before me, Archibald A. Johnson, an acting justice of the peace in and for said county in the state aforesaid, Flora MacDonald and Catherine McBride, both of whom are well known to me to be respectable and truth-telling women, and after being duly sworn according to law, doth say that they are acquainted with Daniel Goines, late of the county and state aforesaid, and that they know his father, grandfather, and great-grandfather, and that his great-grandfather, John Harmon, was a native of Portugal, and was always called a Portugan, and he was the colour of the natives of that place, and that he and his sons and grandsons always exercised the right of and passed as white in every respect. Signed, Flora MacDonald, aged 88 years, and Catherine McBride, aged 83 years. In the first and second parts of this three-part episode, we explored how anthropologists and genetic genealogists have attempted for decades to shoehorn complex multi-ethnicity into the American binary race paradigm. We investigated aspects of so-called black and white culture and learned how any attempt to draw clear cultural lines between people based on race is doomed to failure. We looked at one of the largest mixed ethnic groups in America, the Melungeons, and we asked whether the word Melungeon might offer any clues to the history of these people. We examined and critiqued earlier efforts to find a source for what was essentially a socio-ethnic slur. We asked why so many Melungeon people claim at least part Portuguese ancestry. We questioned why this slur arose when and where it did, and we wondered why members of a small mountain Baptist church would be admonished for offering a safe harbor to Melungeons. We then asked what kind of people might be in need of harboring in a remote section of Western Virginia in 1812. Runaway slaves? 
criminals, free people of color, there is one last group of people who might have been in need of a safe harbor. Deserters from war. And what if those deserters from war also happened to be free people of color? By the time Melungeons were first mentioned in 1813, the young USA was once more embroiled in war with the UK, only 30 years after the end of the American Revolution. We should remember that the conflict which became known as the American Revolution was actually a civil war. It's funny, but most Americans have come to imagine that the 13 colonies were populated only with so-called patriots, and that the enemy were foreign Brits in red coats shipped in to oppress a people universally in favor of independence. The truth is, perhaps 40% of Americans supported the Patriot cause, with around 20% openly loyal to the British crown. The other 40% were people just trying to keep their heads down. Recent German immigrants, many Scottish and Northern Irish Presbyterians, pacifist Quakers, and probably a lot of closet loyalists keeping their mouths shut. Admitting loyalty to the British Empire created a real risk of being burnt out and dispossessed of one's home and property. While many loyalists, or Tories, would move north to Canada after the war, many of the dispossessed Tories or loyalist deserters would end up heading west into Appalachia during and immediately after the war. Many loyalist soldiers were people of colour, and people of colour on the losing side in this war were people in need of a safe harbour, that's for sure. As regards the Patriots, most American schoolchildren are encouraged to imagine that their Patriot ancestors were militias composed of white yeoman farmers. The truth, as always, is much more complicated. Yeoman farmers were among the soldiers least likely to stay the distance over an eight-year conflict. They had a lot to lose in leaving their farms and families unprotected and unprovided for. So the Continental Army's enlisted ranks were filled with immigrants straight off the boat, as well as men and boys from the poor backcountry underclasses hoping for cash or land bounty rewards in exchange for their service. Many will be surprised to learn that these backcountry militia members were very often the same mixed ethnic people we've been learning about, and they were augmented by mercenaries and soldiers from other countries, especially France, without whom the Americans would have almost certainly lost their Revolutionary War. Every war in history has its share of deserters. And with wars in colonial America being waged on the edge of a swampy and mountainous wilderness, desertion was especially common. When we think about soldiers and deserters from this particular conflict, we should always bear in mind the very much mixed ethnic composition of both loyalist and American troops. 
it would be 1792, well after the war, before the new U.S. government would forbid free men of color from entering army service. Which brings us neatly to the hundreds of free Creole Sandomangans, or Haitians, and others from the French colonies of Martinique and Guadeloupe who served at the Siege of Savannah in 1779, also known as the Chaussures Volontaires de Saint-Domingue. I'm Brian Halpin. Welcome to the time before we were white. Safe Harbor, Part 3, Chapter 7 Goodbye, Sandomang. Hello, Holler. The Siege of Savannah was conducted by French, Haitian, and American soldiers who were attempting to dislodge the British occupiers of that city. The siege was a failure, not least due to American patriot deserters who informed the British of rebel plans. After the disastrous siege of Savannah, many American, French, and Haitian soldiers had had enough and melted away into the tidal marshes, rivers, islands, and estuaries of the Georgia and South Carolina Low Country. But many dozens of these Haitian free persons of color stayed the course and marched north to engage at the Siege of Charleston, bringing their wounded comrades from Savannah with them wherever possible. There at Charleston, in the spring of 1780, they fought in a brigade alongside Spanish soldiers and militias raised from rural Virginia. The Americans and their allies, of course, lost the Siege of Charleston. Presumably, Many of the surviving Virginians who weren't captured made their way home to lick their wounds. The fate of many of the Chaussures Volontaires de Saint-Domingue is unclear. We know that the French elites pretty much reneged on the lofty promises made to these men, a situation which would eventually contribute to Haiti's own War of Independence. Some were shipped to Grenada after the fall of Charleston, while others eventually returned to Saint-Domingue, soon to be renamed Haiti, to serve as garrison troops there, before fighting in the war for Haitian independence less than ten years later. The Haitian Creole word for mixed is mélange. As ever, money and the American slave economy overruled decency. The USA under Jefferson, far from reciprocating with military aid to Haitian freedom fighters, actively attempted to sabotage Haitian aspirations for liberty. 
History is also largely silent on the fate of many black loyalists, the escaped slaves of patriots who had gone over to the British side to fight in hopes of gaining their freedom. Out of around 19,000 black loyalist troops who served under the British, about three and a half thousand would relocate to Nova Scotia after the war, forming one of the largest communities of free African people outside of Africa at the time. Another group of potential war deserters and refugees remains virtually unmentioned by historians. These were the free people of colour of Virginia and the Carolinas who took the Tory side during the War of Independence. Anyone suspected of Loyalist or Tory sympathies during the Revolution found themselves liable to accusations of spying and were often victims of reprisals, including violence and land and property confiscation. To be a free person of colour and a Tory, well, you won't find many Appalachians today admitting to this particular ancestral legacy. Yet the descendants of these Tory people of colour are with us today, in the mountains of Virginia, eastern Kentucky, and eastern Tennessee, with branches scattered to the four corners of the USA. Sizemore, Julian, Goines, York, Hembry, Starnes, Riddle, Nance, Turner, Combs, Justice, Shoemate, Strickland, Francisco, Rambo, Quarles, LaForce, Summerlin. All of these Appalachian families, and many, many more, had ancestors who pinned their colors to the mast of the losing side, and most of them were of mixed ethnicity. So here we are. We have three different strands of people of color. Chaussures, black loyalists, and free people of color, both Tory and Patriot. All would have been on a precarious footing in a jingoistic and racist Revolutionary War era America. Faced with military defeat, imprisonment, deportation, mob violence, lynchings, racism, property confiscations, and broken promises, it is silly to believe that many of these men of color didn't cut their losses and head for the hills. Men from both sides. And indeed, many did make the decision to strike out for remoter parts, beyond the reach of patriot mobs. Those remoter parts included the swamps, forests, hills, and hollers of the American frontier. For any stray chaussures in particular, after British victory at the Siege of Charleston, it would have made sense for them to join or at least follow their fellow brigade members north into backcountry Virginia. 
their route north, most likely via the PD and Yadkin rivers, whose banks were already populated with multi-ethnic communities, including the last of the PD Indians. And this is where it gets tricky. As the war began to swing in favour of the Americans, one cannot imagine a more difficult situation for all people of colour hoping to avoid further entanglement in the conflict. It seems doubtful that many white Americans would have been able or willing to understand the difference between actual patriot-free people of colour, Tory-free people of colour, formerly enslaved black loyalists on the run, and erstwhile chasseurs volontaires de Saint-Domingue. And in the years after the war, even if patriot-free people of colour and French-speaking chasseurs could have made clear that they had fought for the Americans, they would have still been seen, at least by some, as deserters. In an odd twist to the plot, less than ten years after the end of the Revolutionary War, a wealthy and ruthless French coal-mining magnate named Pierre Tuboeuf arrived in the region around Scott County, Virginia during the 1790s, hoping to lay claim to over 55,000 acres of wilderness land already inhabited by various Shawnee, Cherokee, and multi-ethnic mountain people. A people he noted as being adept snake handlers. And Tuboeuf was not the first to make this observation. As early as 1782, another traveller in this Melungeon heartland, a German by the name of Johann Schupf, noted how the local people, who he called Mountain Indians, quote, do not fear or dread the serpent, but indeed embrace it almost lovingly, unquote. It's worth noting by the by that snakes have a central place in both Cherokee and Haitian traditional religious practice. If any chaussures volontaires de Saint-Domingue or their children were living in Cherokee country along the Clinch River, with the Haitian War of Independence raging at the time, we can imagine what they whispered to their other mixed ethnic neighbours regarding French elites. While it is entirely possible that Tuboeuf himself used the term mélange privately in reference to the mixed people inhabiting the mountains he was hoping to mine and exploit, it seems unlikely that local people who are at best suspicious and probably outright hostile to his grand designs would borrow and embrace an epithet used by an overtly elitist man they so clearly disliked. Tuboeuf and his small entourage would soon find themselves the victims of black tricks put upon us by the inhabitants, with such black tricks including the mysterious killing of livestock and what seems to have been folk magic or outright intimidation in the form of venomous snakes being delivered to his door. Tuboeuf being a man well known for his fear of them. Tuboeuf would in fact be found murdered soon after, his high-handed dealings with mountain folks brought to an abrupt end. 
So, if we have a number of men of colour, quite possibly war deserters, lying low in the remote mountain regions of Virginia shortly after the American Revolution, they were certainly a group of men likely in need of a safe harbour at times. Remember, since 1792, men of colour had been disbarred from enlisting in the US Army, so by the outbreak of the War of 1812, the status of many free people of colour along the frontier had been much reduced. The right to enlist for a term as a soldier had always been an important economic lifeline and mark of status for many underclass backcountry and mountain men, with the promise of pay, land bounties, and perhaps most important, access to a service pension and respect in old age. Of course, military service as a marker badge of respectability has a deep history in white underclass American culture as well, still visible to the present day. It is clear that the foregoing argument for the origin of the word melungeon relies on much speculation, even if the dates, locations, and events align perfectly. But still, if the word melungeon truly came into first use between, say, 1780 and 1810, then it seems at least interesting that the Haitian Creole word for mixed is melange. Of course, as we've already heard, French proper also has the word melange, but the word for mixed when referring to people of mixed ethnicity in modern French is more usually Creole or Métis. It would require some serious scholarship to unearth the 18th and 19th century slang terms and slurs used by the French-speaking minority in Anglo-North America. But make no mistake, there were plenty of people speaking French. Huguenot pirates, slave traders and settlers at places such as Mannequin Town in Virginia. Acadian or Cajun refugees from the time of the French and Indian War who had been expelled from Nova Scotia and dispersed up and down the eastern seaboard, and often mixed ethnic and impoverished people treated as low-born outcasts by the Anglo-American colonists. River traders from Haute-Louisiane or Upper Louisiana who reached Appalachia from the west. French cavalry infantry and artillerymen who had fought in America during the American Revolution, including our chasseurs. All of this and more gives the lie to the ill-informed claims made by the so-called Melungeon expert Tim Hashaw, with his frankly ridiculous assertion that, quote, the wary xenophobic vigil of the British American colony of Virginia in the 17th century seriously undermines a possible French or Portuguese influence on the origin of the name Melungeon. This would exclude any theorized French fur trappers alleged to have discovered the Melungeons in all lost or abandoned Portuguese or Spanish colonies. 
A blue-eyed Indian would have been viewed suspiciously by the British in Virginia, who habitually destroyed any French, Spanish, or Portuguese settlements they found after first executing or deporting their inhabitants. Unquote. Annoyingly, Hashaw tends to write as if his theory were an established fact or starting point for his other debatable points. He argues everything from his own assumption that the word Melungeon arose from social conditions in the 1600s or 1700s, even though there is zero evidence that the word was in use by anyone anywhere earlier than the 1800s. Even worse, Hashaw then chooses to conflate people acting on behalf of a hostile 17th century Catholic French government with later French speakers in general, just to suit his hypothesis. The British, in fact, welcomed Frenchmen into Anglo-America, provided they were French Protestants. There are Thousands of Appalachian Americans alive today, bearing surnames such as Agui, Amanet, Apperson, Ballou, Barnett, Brashear, Brock, Bundren, Chastine, Corbett, Crockett, Dabney, Depp, Dupree, Faure, Fontaine, Fugit, Fuquay, Hash, Jordan, Laforce, Lambert, Levine, Lamaster, Lovely, Maupin, Maxi, Mullins, Napier, No, Parmentier, Parton, Petty, Ramey, Reno, Robinette, Sally, C.A., Sevier, Shoemate, Tackett, Wingo. We could go on. Through all the decades of these originally French-speaking people moving into the American interior along rivers such as the James, Holston, and Clinch, we are expected to believe the expression Race mélange, or mixed race, was never once uttered. Remember that every single time we see the word melungeon used during the 19th century, it is a slur. It is a serious slur. And the power of the slur lay in calling people mixed race. Not specifically Angolan, not specifically Indian. Being mixed was the entire point of the insult. The following quotes were attributed to members of the Vardy community of Hancock County, Tennessee, and published in the Louisville Examiner and Knoxville Register during the 1840s. The quotes make abundantly clear that Melungeon was a slur meaning mixed. Note, the bleep replaces the n-word, which I'd rather not repeat. Quote, During a rather spirited dance one evening, a Mr. George Bilson, while cutting the pigeon wing, clodded ungraciously upon the toes of one Miss Syl Varman. Syl remarked that George needed to keep his feet off her, or she would shorten them for him. George responded that Seal was nothing but a cross-grained critter anyhow. And you're a darn melungeon, snapped back Seal, an insinuation to which George retaliated, Well, if I am, I ain't melungeon anyhow. I'm Indian melungeon, and that's more than you is. Unquote. 
none of the foregoing is intended to suggest that all or even most of the people who got called Melungeons during the 1800s are part descended from Haitian soldiers who fought in the American Revolution. This is simply one plausible origin theory for a term, or slur, which over time came to be applied to non-white-looking mountain folks in general. Just like the words cracker and redneck once referred to specific groups of people before becoming more generalized terms. Years of research following my first encounter with the word Melungeon has revealed an unimaginably rich ethnic tapestry in early American history, and many of the families once called Melungeon as a slur are clearly, clearly far, far more than just tri-racial isolates. At the same time, they most certainly are no mysterious lost tribe for non-Appalachians and academics to gawk at. While mainstream America would like to view these communities as exotic anomalies, as if they were parrots at the North Pole, the truth lies in a better metaphor or analogy. America was once, in its early days, a place very much more a home to brown peoples. The later 18th and 19th century waves of white immigration from the British Isles, Germany, Poland, Scandinavia and elsewhere, swept across the continent, leaving only small islands of old mix America in their wake. But there is no Melungeon gene, nor is there a standard Melungeon genetic profile, whatever the online snake oil salespeople might try to claim when flogging their Are you a Melungeon DNA tests? All these tests can really do is show that you are related to typical, multi-ethnic, southern Appalachian mountain folks. How can there be a Melungeon gene when these southern Appalachians carry heritage traceable to five continents? While certain people attempt to throw a Scots-Irish blanket over Appalachia, the European continent alone supplied immigrants from Wales, England, Ireland, Scotland, France, the Netherlands, Germany, Sweden, Finland, Portugal, the Azore Islands, Spain, Menorca, Poland, and Greece. And no, these are not late 19th century coal mining immigrants. All of these European ethnic groups were in America at least as early as the Scots-Irish, and many much earlier. Indigenous South American genes entered North America via merchants and slave traders operating out of places like Suriname and Brazil. Indigenous Caribbean Taino and Arawak genes also entered North America via merchants, slave traders, privateers, and pirates. The African contribution to Southern Appalachia included more than free and enslaved sub-Saharan African peoples, Statelets nominally under Ottoman authority along the Barbary coast of North Africa, where Tunisia, Algeria, and Morocco are now located, were 
tightly interlinked with the economies of various colonial powers. Off the southeast coast of Africa lies Madagascar, a vast island with a population comprised of people from East Africa, Arabia and South Asia. Portuguese control of Malagasy trading ports ensured that Malagasy people were sold into slavery around the world, with large numbers ending up in colonial Virginia. And the long arm of colonialism reached even farther east, right into Asia and the East Indies. English, Dutch and Portuguese merchants traded with or operated out of Ottoman lands, now Turkey, Persia, now Iran, Armenia, India, Ceylon, now Sri Lanka, all the way to Indonesia, South China, and even as far as Japan. And yes, many people from these distant lands ended up in colonial America. It's right there, in various pieces of legislation which tried to deal with groups such as Moors and Lascars, brown people who were messing up the black-and-white binary caste system. After casting this quick eye over the five continents of North America, South America, Europe, Africa, and Asia, we still haven't even included the diasporic peoples, ethnic groups which had no nation-state of their own, but were an international presence and influence. These include, of course, the Jewish diaspora, especially the Sephardic branch of the Jewish people, and the Romani or Gypsy diaspora. Perhaps most of all, we cannot forget the people who were in and around Eastern and Appalachian North America first, the people from the many indigenous tribes and nations such as the Shawnee, Creek, Cherokee, Choctaw, Nanzimund, Lenape, Catawba, Tuscarora, Mi'kmaq, and others. While all of these groups were much reduced by warfare and disease, and many were forced westwards during the Great Anglo-American land grab, many survived, and some of their blood flows through the veins of many, many Southern Appalachians. So when all is said and done, Southern Appalachia and Melungeons represent the real face of early American ethnic history, and often brown ethnic history, before a vicious white supremacy forced multi-ethnicity into the Shadowlands. And while being Melungeon may be a social construct, being Southern Appalachian is most certainly not. To be Southern Appalachian is to be part of a people with an extraordinary shared history, identity, and culture. Not a white Christian nationalist identity constructed during the 20th century, a confected identity held together with lies and glue, and always served up with a mighty side order of guns and red, white, and blue exceptionalism. No, an identity that involves real people, in a real place, with a real shared past. A past of shape note singing and close harmonies. 
Corn shuckings and quilting bees, hilltop farms and dog trot cabins, coal mines and coal wars, ginseng root and may apples, slaveholders and abolitionists, election day shoot-ups and river baptisms, cornbread and greens, haints and old Cherokee fields and way trees, trailers and shacks and trucks and red-eye gravy and biscuits, porches and banjo and fiddle tunes. Southern Appalachia is not primarily Scots-Irish. Simply repeating something again and again does not make it true. It just makes drawing attention to the truth a lot harder. And again, the truth is this. The very essence of Southern Appalachian identity is multi-ethnicity. And this multi-ethnic culture of Appalachia is absolutely foundational to American identity in general. Given the special mix of ethnic groups and traditions which occurred over centuries there, it might not be wrong to refer to Southern Appalachians as a real emergent ethnic group all their own, much in the same way that the English nation was formed by the intermixing of ancient Britons, Romans, Saxons, Danes, and Normans. I'll leave you with just one or two final tantalizing points. The Virginian militiamen at the Siege of Charleston were drawn largely from around Amelia County, Virginia, just down the road from Louisa County. The origin of old historical melungeons like Spanish Peggy Gibson. The mixed ethnic Boltons from later race trials served in Loyalist regiments in South Carolina. Other historical Melungeons, such as Jacob Perkins, served on the Patriot side at the Battle of Charleston. These are delightful coincidences, if coincidences they are. Remember that the backcountry Virginians and Haitians had fought alongside a regiment of Spaniards at the Siege of Charleston, after all. And remember the Frenchman Tabouf and his dread of locals with snakes. Haiti was the earliest place in the Americas to syncretize the West African voodoo religion with Christianity, and snake handling remains to this day an integral part of certain voodoo ceremonies. How profoundly odd it seems that the earliest widely known Christian churches in America to incorporate snake handling in their ceremonies were to be found in the very heart of Melungeon country, Hawkins County, Tennessee. Each part of this three-episode podcast on the Melungeons 
began with scenes from old court cases in which multi-ethnic people's lives were placed on trial, with people being forced by racists to account for their very skin colour, their very self-identity. I'll close with the words of one more witness from one of those Melungeon trials. A person named Daniel Stout, an elderly man of partly German extraction, born in 1781, a man who wore his own whiteness lightly. I knew George, Jacob, Joshua and Lewis 65 years ago. They said they came from PD, South Carolina and called themselves Portuguese and were so called in the neighborhood. I lived near them 40 years. They married white women. I knew old John Graves. Never saw old Jock. Never heard him called a Negro. People in those days said nothing about such things. This episode of Before We Were White was written and produced by your host, Brian Halpin. Before We Were White main theme, performed by Dave McLaughlin, Rodney Lancashire, Ray Cohn, and Steph West. Visit the Before We Were White YouTube channel for bonus content related to each episode. Episode notes, resources, show transcripts, and further reading lists are available to supporters on our members page at beforewewerewhite.com. Supporters are also added to our social media forum, where they can field questions pertaining to podcast episodes and much more. Our work would simply not be possible without the ongoing help of our friends. Genuine thanks to Leanne, Jane, Pamela, Tara, Julie, and newer fans like Michal, Ephraim, and Rhiannon. If you would like to support us as well, please visit www.beforewewerewhite.com forward slash support. Every contribution helps, large or small. Thank you.